is so good to see all of you here in the room. It's so good to see all of you in the chat online. We're thrilled you're here with us today. Our first Sunday offering in-person gathering since before Christmas, but it feels like longer than that. Am I the only one who thinks it feels like longer than that? And of course, uh, as you know, we are in the month of February, and the month of February is Black History Month. Um, and of course, one month is not sufficient to celebrate black history, because it's American history. But it feels to me like this particular February is really important. And it feels really important because there are active forces in our country, specifically in our state here in Tennessee, that are trying to silence and whitewash American history. They're trying to silence and whitewash the experience of black Americans in this country the oppression, injustice, and equity that have been experienced and are continuing in our country. And I know that Governor Bill Lee, Senator Marsha Blackburn, and Moms for Liberty are worried about making white kids uncomfortable. Maybe white kids need to be uncomfortable. Right? Like maybe, maybe we all need to be uncomfortable when we become aware of the history of this country. And the reason it's so important to tell the truth about history is because if we don't tell the truth about history, we are doomed to repeat it again and again and again and again and again. So if we're not going to tell the truth at our schools, we're going to tell it at church, and we're going to tell it at our house, and I hope you're telling it at your house, because we do not have to live the way we've lived. And this country does not have to be what it has been. We can do better. And so this feels, this February, feels like an important moment to just remind us again and again and again. We've got a long way to go. Um, but we have to start somewhere. So, that's the sermon for today. <laughs> we'll figure out what's... So today we're actually going to start a new series. Um, it's called What About? And this series is basically generated by questions that some of you have asked as you've been in the, your own process of unraveling, de, almost said deconversion, which is actually kind of true, uh, deconstruction, let's forget deconstruct, let's just deconvert, um, deconstruction, uh, and all, whatever language you want to use to describe what you're experiencing, when that begins to happen, you begin trying to piece together where you are now and what a path forward might be, and some of the questions that pop up is, well, yeah, but what about what about? What do we do with this particular piece of theology? Or what do we do with this particular ritual? Um, and I actually want to begin today by talking about the Bible. Now, if you're new at Grace Point, this may be uh, brand new information for you. But a year ago, exactly tomorrow, a year ago this weekend, I gave a sermon about the Bible that the contents of which went a little bit viral. Because of some things I said about the Bible. I'm going to say those again today. Uh, because as the chick's saying, I am not ready to make nice. Uh, we're going we're gonna to double down on this. And here's why. Because the, the Bible is really, really important. And that's why I'm starting with it. I we could have started this series with any number of important topics. But I chose to begin with the Bible because for so many people, like me, like you probably, you were raised in a context where the Bible was everything. It was almost like if we were being honest about the importance, we would have gone, Bible... Jesus, right? If we're just being honest. The great scholar, the late scholar Marcus Borgs, he rightfully pointed out that conflict 
about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. And if you want a proof of that, just go back through church history. Every major division, every major split, the reason we have some estimates say over 36,000 denominations today in the Protestant world, the reason all that exists is because people picked up the same collection of texts, they opened them, and then they started arguing about what they meant. And they argued to such an extent where they said, well, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore because your take on this is dangerous. And so the Bible is at the center of almost every Christian disagreement. And it's not just the contents of the Bible that are at the center of every main Christian disagreement. It's what even is it? Right? Like, what is this, this thing that you can go to a store and buy? What is it? And what do we do with it? And so since the Bible is so central, we have to do something with it, right? We, we can't just ignore it. We have to do something with it. Some people have chosen the option to leave it behind. And I said this a couple weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. If that's you, that's okay. If that's you, that's okay. Because the Bible has been used in such a way that it has brought harm and trauma and destruction. And if you need to call a timeout, whether that's for the next little bit, or maybe that's for like maybe a long, long time, maybe it's forever. You just need a break from the Bible. It's not, maybe you say to the Bible, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> and you just need to hit pause. That's okay. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation. Christians managed for a few hundred years without it. And you can be a decent human being without it. Actually, if you take some of it too literally, you may not end up being a decent human being. So if that's where you are, I want you to understand that that's okay. That's okay. The other options are to reframe it, to try to re-understand it, to try to reimagine it. And I don't mean just kind of make it up on our own. I mean, going back to, like, how has this been seen by Christians for a couple thousand years? Because, like, actually, there's more to Christian history than the last couple hundred, although it really seems like most people don't know that. Um, to reframe, what is it? What do we do? What does it mean? Where, where did it come from? How do we understand that? And then for some, it's also to reclaim it. Here's what I always say, and I've probably said it, maybe I say this every week, but I feel like it just needs to be said. If you have lost the Bible, and you're like, whew, glad that's over, okay. But if you've lost the Bible, if it's been taken from you by, by people who've interpreted it and weaponized it, and you have grief around that, if you feel a sense of loss, what I hope we can do here at Grace Point is help offer it back to you in a way that is not only de-weaponized, but in a way that now can become a healing balm. Instead of a source of wounding, maybe that we can reimagine it, reframe it, and reclaim it in such a way that it becomes a source of healing for some of the wounds that it was used to create. That's my hope. So what I want to do today is I just want to talk about how the Bible's been understood by some people for a particular period of time, and then I want to offer an alternative understanding. Does that sound like a good time? Because that's all I had prepared. So if you, did, if you were out, I'm like, well, okay. So I want to begin, like, the, the Bible has unfortunately been understood using lots and lots of cliches. Right? The Bible has just been cliched. How many of you ever heard the acronym Bible? B-I-B-L-E. Do we know what that means? I don't think I have the meaning up there. What does it mean? Basic instructions before leaving earth. It's like the Bible for astronauts. <laughs> is that only applies to people who might leave the planet. 
for a brief period of time. Look, here, here, here's the problem. You, you know the person who came up with that was sitting around one day and they were like, Bible, B, I, B. I'm a genius. <laughs> like, you know they thought, they, it's why God called it that. Because it's basic instructions. I have nothing more to say to that than, look, some people have understood the Bible as a rule book. Or as an instruction manual. Like, you want to know how to live life? Read the instruction manual. How many of you have ever read an instruction manual? You are in the vast minority. Like, you only consult the instruction manual after you've just tried it. Many times and failed. Right? So is that what we're being told? Like, hey, this is thing over here. Only look at it after you've failed disastrously. I don't, I don't think so. The Bible actually isn't an instruction manual. It's something much more beautiful than that. Um, sometimes people have used the Bible like a magic eight ball. You know what I mean by that? You remember the magic eight balls where you, you shake it up, it's full of some sort of liquid and a, and a triangle-shaped die, and you shake it up, you ask it a question like, should I ask so-and-so to the dance? Should I, where should I, should I go to this college or that college? You shake it up, and it gives you an answer. Some people approach the Bible that way, like it's an answer book. And actually what I found is when you go to the Bible, if you actually are taking it seriously, you often leave with way more questions than answers. And so this idea that every answer you'll ever need is in the Bible, and then you're like, well, how does, how does subatomic particles work? <laughs> it's not in there, because they didn't understand that. Right, so this idea that the Bible provides a source for all of life's answer, uh, questions, maybe that's not the point. Maybe what the Bible is trying to give us are better questions. Maybe it's trying to, to teach us an awareness that helps us uh, expand our consciousness, not something that's trying to shrink us down. And then, um, how many of you ever heard somebody say this? Well, the Bible says, and they're never happy when they say it. <laughs> it's like even they know what they're about to tell you stinks. But it's in there, so you have to quote it. The Bible says, the best response to that I've discovered is the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible does not say anything. The Bible reads. It is ink on a page. We make it say when we say, here's what it means. Because the moment you stop just reading the text and you start interpreting the text, you're in a whole other realm. And the Bible doesn't say anything. We make it say. We're the ones saying, here's what these words on this page mean. Every time you engage the Bible, you're engaging in an interpretive act. You know the people who say to you, I'm not telling you my opinion, I'm just telling you the Bible? Impossible. Every time you say it means, you're giving an opinion. And it may be your opinion, and it may be somebody else's opinion, but it's an opinion. It may be a really, really good opinion. But you still have to understand that you're not speaking with ultimate authority that you're an interpreter. And most of the time, you're not just an interpreter. How many of you in this room read ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic? So we're not even interpreting the text. We're interpreting people who've interpreted the text when they translated it. Do you see how muddy that gets? So imagine being so sure about your rightness that you begin to exclude large swaths of humanity and consign billions of people to eternal conscious torment based on your interpretation of somebody else's interpretation of somebody else's interpretation of manuscripts that we don't even have now. My goodness. Clichés actually don't help us get to the core of what the Bible is. Another way the Bible's been understood as it's inerrant and infallible. This is the, one of the ones that gets you in big trouble. 
And so I want to give you this, as clearly as I can. If you want to hold the opinion that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, please never read it. Because the moment you do, you will realize we are not dealing with some pristine text that fell from the sky. We're dealing with something far more interesting, complex, and beautiful. Because sometimes the Bible disagrees with itself. Let's put it like this. Sometimes the Bible, the writers of Scripture, argue with one another. Right? You go to some of the wisdom literature, like Proverbs, and it essentially says, guess what? If you do all the right things, good things are coming your way. And then Job enters the chat. Yeah. <laughs> and Job's like, uh, wait a tick. I did lots of good things, only good things, and I'm suffering immensely. Right? Because nothing is linear. The Bible doesn't, isn't just this linear dropping of truth. It's people sharing stories and experiences and then other people coming back and wrestling with them, critiquing them, pushing back on them, offering other perspectives and insights and, and examples, and then other people doing that. And then we come along as interpreters and we're doing that same thing. And one of the claims most often for the Bible is it's inerrant and infallible because it says so. doesn't say so. But it says, which is like this. Are you with me? This, this particular set of texts tells me it's perfect. What if a person told you that? Don't look me up online. I'm great. Like you would probably have questions. And so the important thing, though, is the Bible actually doesn't make that claim. That claim that the Bible is inerrant and infallible is actually maybe a couple hundred years old uh, in, in the way we understand it today. And so this idea that this, there's this text that sort of came to us, and it's perfect, and if we, if we wrestle with it, if we question it, if we interpret it, if we push back on it, if there's any sort of other than yes, please, thank you, that we're somehow... Um, wrong or sinful or we don't have enough faith, that is not how the ancients dealt with the text. If you read, like, go read the New Testament and anytime they quote a text from the Hebrew Bible, understand this. If they had done that in a seminary paper, they would have failed. Because the way the New Testament writers used the Hebrew scriptures was in a way that if you go to seminary and you're trained, they tell you you can't read the Bible that way. They used it creatively. They wrestled with it. At times, they edited it on the fly because they wanted to make it say something else, something better in their mind. And I actually think this claim for inerrancy and infallibility is a barrier to the Bible. Because what makes the Bible interesting, to me at least, is the conversation that takes place within it. It is the discussion, it's the dialogue, it's the pushback. That's what makes it interesting. Nobody, like, you don't... How many of you have ever watched a daytime talk show where they argue a bit? Okay, let's just be honest. Have you ever watched Jerry Springer? Just raise your hand. We can be honest. You don't watch that hoping they're all going to get along and agree on everything. Right? You watch it because there's something about the back and forth. That's present. Sometimes some of the parts of the Bible could actually have been on the Jerry Springer show also. But it's fascinating, and we lose that when we sort of just put the Bible in a museum behind the glass. The Bible is actually, it's one of those things, I, I had a family member once when I was a kid who had a living room full of furniture, but it wasn't sitting furniture. It was like wrapped in plastic, and I wasn't even allowed to go in the room. 
what it, this furniture was created to be lounged upon, and we're not allowed to touch it? Like, the, the, the text is not something to be imprisoned behind glass. It's something to be engaged and wrestled with and to get your hands dirty with. Here's the other one that gets you in big trouble. One of the central claims is that the Bible is the word of God. The literal, we'll talk about that in a second, the literal word, literal word of God. And here's the thing, what that turns people into, because people produce the Bible. Uh, I heard Bart Ehrman say once that the Bible may be divinely inspired, but it has human fingerprints all over it. And the more we understand about where the Bible came from, the more we understand about how sometimes editors would bring together different sources to create story and just beautiful, brilliant, creative work. But when we say that the Bible is the word of God, essentially that God told people and dictated to them the very words to write is if this collection of texts just fell out of the sky, leather bound, gilded edges with my name on the cover, King James English, because if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us, like that that's how it worked. Right? What that removes, it remo removes human participation. And maybe some of the best news I can give you today is that God does not want to use you because using people is wrong. They want to partner with you, and that's different. God longs to partner with humanity. And what I think happens in Scripture, in the text, is this dance between the human and the divine, the human misunderstanding, wrestling, getting it wrong sometimes, and then repenting and getting it right. There's so much of this beautiful human interaction with the divine throughout the Bible. God didn't take over human minds and tell them what to write. People wrote about their experiences of the divine. Often it happens in conversation. And I know why people, the reason we have a Protestant problem with the Bible is because at the Reformation, we got rid of the Pope. But we needed an authority. So where do you place authority? Well, we've had a rough time with humans in authority. Where do we place authority? Let's place it here. But here's the truth about the authority of the Bible. Do you know why the Bible has authority? Not because it says written by God at the end. The Bible has authority because groups of people, communities like ours, have engaged this text and found it meaningful and found resonances of truth and have found a draw. And we've said, this text has authority. That's how they made the canon, by the way. One of the stipulations for how a book got in was, is it widely read and accepted among the churches? Not did it fall from the sky, but have communities found it reliable, trustworthy, and meaningful? And I think that's how the Bible still works. Do I think that the, there are words of God in the Bible? Of course. Of course. But I think it takes a community of discernment to decide that. Do I think that it is the word of God at the end of this beautiful song that begins by the rivers of Babylon we set and wept? Do I think the word of God appears at the end when it says, and blessed are those who take the babies of the Babylonians and dash them against the rocks? Do, do I think it's the word of God in Deuteronomy where it tells Israelite soldiers, how to take women as spoils of war and how to treat them if they don't like them? No, I think what we find is a, a cultural context. We find people wrestling with how do we live in this culture. We don't find the word. Do we find the words of God in announcements of good news, in the celebration of the inclusion of all people into God's family? Do we find the words of God often coming loud and clear through 
prophets and preachers? Absolutely we do. But that's different than saying everything in here is of equal weight and value. And that everything in here represents God's heart and will for the world. Because that would just be terrible if that were true. And then, then this, what goes with that often is literalism. That if you really are taking the Bible seriously, you're taking it literally. We were sitting at dinner one night and my daughter, my oldest daughter was eating. And the only way I can describe what she was eating, it was like a ton of chicken. <laughs> like chicken communities talk about her because of the damage she did. And my wife looks at her and she says, you know, if you keep eating that, you're going to turn into a chicken. And our daughter, Jay, immediately went, no! Like, pushes her plate away. I don't want to turn into a chicken. Now, that's cute because she's five. But that's how we've been taught to read the Bible. And it actually doesn't respect the text or the people who wrote it. Great scholar John Dominic Cross said, it's not that we are, the ancients were so dumb that they took all their stories literally and we're so brilliant that we take them figuratively and parabolically at times. It's that they knew exactly that they weren't writing literal history. They knew what they were creating and that we have come along and think we're so smart that we take it all literally. And the truth is the Bible is full of all sorts of different kinds of literature. But when we take the approach of literalism, that everything, every single thing that is reported in these pages is true, Literally true, historically true. One, one, another Marcus Board quote is, everything in the Bible is true and some of it happened. <laughs> and, and being able to let go of the need for literalism and to understand that the Bible's far more nuanced than that. And it's not inviting us into, because and here's the thing, I used to wrestle with that. Like I just wanted to know what was, when I got to this point, what is literally true and what is metaphorical? What is parabolic? What is not actual history? And I lost sleep over this for like a decade. And then it dawned on me, who knows and how do you prove that? So maybe we just approach the Bible not caring about what's literal and seeking truth and meaning. And I sleep so much better. And the Bible actually always delivers on that because that's what it's actually designed to deliver on is meaning meaning for us to wrestle with and grapple with we have to stop reading the bible that way because what that ultimately does is it creates all of this hostility and then suddenly if people aren't living up to your interpretation of the bible you've weaponized the bible and you're using it to wound people how many of you have ever had a bible thrown at you metaphorically or literally yeah, yeah. Barbara Brown Taylor has this great quote. She said, as a general rule, I would say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. <laughs> what if God doesn't need our protection? What if that's not what this is about? What if God is not saying every day, gosh, I wish they would defend orthodoxy a little more fiercely today. What if actually defending orthodoxy is what gets in the way of the actual command, which is to love God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? What if God's primary concern about you is not what is in your brain, but the kind of human life that flows through your heart and your hands and your feet? And so I think some of the central work, those of us, I and I, mean just, I should have said this at the beginning, I love the Bible. I do. I love the Bible. I think about it all the time. It's sad, really. 
how much I think about it. When I, when I find something new or discover something I didn't know, it excites me, and I want to call people and tell them as if I just won the lottery, and then I remember the list of people who will find this interesting is very, very small. <laughs> I love it so much. That's why I actually believe the work of de-weaponizing it is key. Because for far too long, people have taken the idea that the Bible is a sword, literally. And it functions much better as a scalpel than a sword. And so the work we're trying to be about here at Grace Point is de-weaponizing this text, de-weaponizing the scripture, and, and finding new ways to approach it and connect with it and find it meaningful and have it be a part of our community. And the Bible is central for me as a person in my life, but it's not God. And there are times when I read something in it and go, I'm so glad we've learned. I'm so glad we've learned past that moment. Because if we'd been frozen in that moment, it would have been bad for human beings forever. So I love it. I don't want to de-weaponize it. And, and so here's an alternative lens I want to give you for how we might approach it. And it begins with this. We have to understand the Bible has a complex history. The oldest parts of the Bible are about 3,000 years old. The youngest parts of the Bible are around 2,000 years old. Which, compared to the universe, is pretty young. Compared to us... It's pretty old, right? And it didn't just fall out of the sky. It was created by people. And it was often, like if you come to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah, what you'll find is that that's not one story from the pen of one author, that there's at least four different sources, four different authors that pieces of their work has been brought together to tell this story. It is not one person saying, let me tell you a story. It's a group of people around a campfire arguing about the story. Well, yeah, but you said Jacob did this, but in my story, Jacob, and that's present. And I think that's beautiful because that's how family stories work. How many of you have ever been talking to somebody in your family, you're talking to two different people, and they remember the story the exact same way? <laughs> Doesn't happen, does it? And, I mean, the ink could not even be dry on the story, and we're arguing about the story because that's how human memory works. And then you add in human creativity. Like if you talk to my oldest just after a basketball game, the story's very different. The stats are the same. But how we got the stats, different. And that's how it works. That's how actually human experience works. And so the Bible has a complex history. And the Bible that we hold in our hands in a translation in the vernacular of uh, English language that we can read and understand like, that didn't just happen overnight either. The Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. It didn't come out as a volume. It was compiled and collected over time. And so understanding that we're not dealing with, people aren't writing all in the same context within the Bible. They're feeling different pressures, and they're responding to different things. Like, it would be like reading tweets 100 years from now without knowing what was going on right now. It would seem like people were just tweeting the weirdest stuff. Some of them are. <laughs> but some of them are spot on, but if you read them out of context, you'd be like, what in the world are they so cranked up about? Right? That's true for the Bible, too. Second, that means we need a contextual interpretation of the Bible. When we start saying the Bible means, all interpretations just aren't on par with one another. 
Some interpretations of the Bible are grounded in like, things like context and history. And even though there are times we don't understand what specific word means, we have to make a best educated guess. There is such a thing as an educated guess. And the reality is, the way I think about it is, pe people who are trying to help us understand the Bible, um, the really good ones are like archaeologists. They're helping us dig down beneath the layers. And there's so many things in the text that the writers think and assume we're going to know because they were writing for people in Iron Age 2. And that's not where we live. So we need help. We need context. And so any reading of the Bible really ought to be grounded in context. And then understanding the Bible is a communal library. It was produced by communities for communities. And it may have had one person, like in the Gospels, maybe one person was the spokesperson for the community, but they wrote that to be read and experienced and engaged within community. Most of the way I was taught to read the Bible growing up was by myself. How many of y'all ever had a quiet time? How many of y'all ever got bored during a quiet time and <laughs> pretended to read your Bible, but you did something else? How many of y'all ever missed a quiet time and felt the shame of the universe fall upon you? Like, I've displeased God because I did not read a chapter today. Like, I, I think the Bible, and that's sort of how we got into this mess, where everybody's their own interpreter, and nobody's actually engaging with other people and figuring out how their interpretations land with other people. It's really easy to have an interpretation that's hateful when you're not sitting across from another human being that your interpretation is excluding. But when you have to look somebody in the eyes and say, here's what I think it means, and you're being a total jerk about it, that maybe you'll realize this, this doesn't seem like good news when they hear it. This doesn't seem like it's going to lead them to human flourishing. It seems like it's diminishing their humanity. Maybe, just maybe, I need to read the Bible a different way. And then ultimately, I think the Bible is a record of the experiences of our spiritual ancestors and an invitation to engage and have our own experiences. I think I was taught part of that growing up, that the Bible reflects our spiritual ancestors' experience. But I was never told that it also invites me into my own. And I think that's what the Bible does. I think the Bible invites our questions and curiosities. I think it invites our disagreements and our challenges. I think the point of the Bible is to open us up, to give us imagination. How many of you growing up, for you, if you grew up in a religious setting, how many of you had a, a developing imagination as a, as a value? How, how many of you were encouraged to be curious? Yeah, questions are okay as long as you accept our answers. Unquestioningly. But what if, what if the point, I, I, some of Jesus' best stories, the story of the prodigal son, which is actually a story about the father, not the son. You know how that story ends? The father and the older brother standing outside of the party. There's a DJ in there, strobe light, it's, the party is jumping. The father and older brother stand outside the older brother's angry because he was never given a young goat to celebrate. I just, love, I just can't wait for the day my kid's like, when can I have a young goat to celebrate with my friends? Um, and and the father's talking to him and says, how can I not celebrate? Your younger brother, I, he was dead, I thought, but now he's alive and he's come home. How can we not celebrate? And the story ends. Last week, Kat brought a wonderful teaching sermon from the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah ends with God going, how can I not care about that? No response, no resolve, 
no resolution. It's almost as if we're being invited to write the end of those stories. Parts of the Bible are a choose-your-own-adventure intentionally. Because dictating words to people is not the same as inviting them into an experience. And I think that's the point of the Bible. I think it's inviting us into our experiences. So really, the Bible has something to say about the past. We, we learn from our spiritual ancestors. We see their stories, their ups, downs, the good, bad, the ugly. It has something to say about the present. It shapes our imagination. It piques our curiosity. It gives us something to be grounded in. I don't celebrate all of my family history, but I'm, I'm grateful that there's some sort of story I'm grounded in. But it also speaks to the future. It speaks to our experiences and how we will, and what we will leave behind for future generations of biblical interpreters. How will we teach them to engage the text? Are we teaching with curiosity? Are we teaching to spark imagination? Because I think the point of a good story isn't just that it's a good story. It sparks in us our own experience. And I think if the writers of Scripture knew that we were reading their words and stopping, they would be devastated. Because I think the point for them was to ask questions about where we're going. And then finally, and this is, I, I, I didn't grow up high church. I didn't learn the word sacrament until I was like 33. But I think the Bible can function as a sacrament. You know what a sacrament is? In theology, the word sacrament essentially means a thin place. It's a place where sort of the, the, the veil between the divine and the human is, is transparent. And so people talk about Eucharist, communion is a thin place. Baptism is a thin place. Um, in Catholicism, there, uh, I think there are seven sacraments. I think the Bible functions that way. The Bible can be a place where we encounter the divine, where we're challenged, where we're spoken to, where we're convicted, where we're a sense of calling even. I think that's true of the text. It can be a thin place. Only when it's been de-weaponized. Because God cannot oppress and God cannot wound because God is the liberator of the oppressed and the healer of wounds. And if we find ourselves engaging the Bible and hearing people talk about it in ways that are doing the opposite of that, I think that's our cue to run. Because we're, we're being given something else. I think the reason people get so frustrated on the Bible is because for lots of them, the Bible is the way they deal with fear and uncertainty. Because we are walking in mystery. There is no such thing as certainty. The only certainty is uncertainty, right? I guess you could say that. And fear. And for some people, the Bible functions as sort of a talisman, a way of saying, well, I just quote this text, then that sort of gives me a, a realm of protection. I'm going to be okay. If, I just, if the Bible has all the answers, if I'm not finding them, I'm not looking hard enough. And so I need to read more and study more. And, then, and, and essentially for lots of people, when you start poking it, their understanding of the Bible, it's not, you're just not saying, hey, let's think about this differently. You're removing their security structure. And I just don't think the Bible does a very good job at providing certainty because that's not the point. But I tell you what I think the Bible can do because the Bible was inspired by and created within community. It was written to meet the needs of community. And I, I think that knowing that our ancestors in the past were wrestling with some of the very questions we have today. That we gather and we wrestle with them together. 
And I, I bet future generations are going to be wrestling with some of these same mysterious questions we are today. Knowing that, I think what it actually can do is we gather together and do that in community. It can actually give us courage to walk into uncertainty. That's what it does. I tell my kids all the time, especially as we've been, you know, over the last couple months, they rolled out vaccines for five and up, and we've been getting our vaccines. We've been having lots of talks about being brave. Some of them didn't take. <laughs> but one of the things we tell our kids all the time is courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward anyway. And there's lots of stuff to be afraid of. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. But as we gather together and we are reimagining what it might look like to be a part of a tradition based not on um, having all the answers and getting it all right, but a community based on all of us working together to make sure that human flourishing is the goal and that the good news is, is that is what God's agenda has been for the human race for the entirety of our time here on this planet and always will be, that we would flourish, that we would thrive, that we would become the best versions of ourselves. As we gather together around that, we can give one another the courage and we can find in examples of our spiritual ancestors the courage to keep going anyway. That's why I just can't get rid of this Bible. Just can't. Because there are moments when you need a community around you who will shut the mouths of lions. Right? There are moments when you need somebody, when you're sinking, to be buoyant enough to walk on water. Because we need to know that when we come to our end, when everything seems hopeless, when something's been dead three days in the grave, that new life might actually be bubbling up and brimming up and bursting through the surface. Are you with me? This is a complicated text, library of texts. Very complicated. We should take it very seriously. And yet, there's something about it that when we get around it in community and engage it, just it makes me feel like anything's possible. Maybe not because of this, but because of this engaging this. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray.